Tonight, our text is in Mark 6 and verses 7 through 13. After Jesus has been rejected by his hometown in Nazareth, uh, we transition to him appointing the twelve for a particular mission. So we'll begin our reading here in verse 7. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, when you leave, shake the, off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And just so we can see the context and the flow of Mark's account in verse 30, we have the return of these apostles it says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And it is significant that the account of the apostles bookends, uh, the account of John the Baptist and will, uh, his death, and we'll look at that uh, in the days uh, ahead. But tonight we're focusing on this commission and sending of these 12 apostles on this mission the theme of the passage that we'll be working with tonight is that Jesus prepares his ambassadors. These men are going to serve Christ as his authoritative revelatory agents to lay the foundation of the church. And as he prepares them for that task, uh, he sends them out on this mission. Jesus prepares his ambassadors. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And now he's going to explain what that means. God making His appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors for Christ simply stated Ambassadors for Christ speak the message that Christ appoints them to speak. They represent Christ and not themselves. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 17, if you remember when Jesus called the, his first disciples to follow him, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. What we find as we've moved through Mark's gospel to this point is that those disciples are indeed following Christ. In fact, in verse 1 of this chapter, in, in chapter 6, it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. 
So Jesus has called these men to follow him. They did. They left everything. They left their nets. They left their families. And they've been following Christ. But there's a second part of the promise that Christ gave when he called them. He said, you follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And so in 6.1, the disciples are following But beginning here in verse 7, when he calls the 12 and begins to send them out two by two, Jesus, we could say, is elevating the training protocol. They've been following. Now he is commissioning them to go out. And Jesus is perfect in all that he does. He's the perfect man. He is a teacher, He's the perfect teacher, and any good teacher understands that instruction for lasting skill sets begins with laying foundational principles. You don't begin by teaching the nuances of uh, the details and, and the specialties of a certain field. Um, you know, think about engineering, which I know nothing about because it has to do with math. Well, any successful engineer didn't start by building large bridges and multi-story buildings in a downtown area. They started with the principles of math, and it grew from there. Their understanding grew from there. And so what we have in this passage and what we would expect to find is that as the 12 go out by twos for the first time, we, we would expect that there would be unchanging principles that Christ teaches them that will ultimately, by extension, apply to all ambassadors for Christ. The details and the context will be different as the church is established, but in this passage, we do find, and, and we'll, we will uh, make this clear, Lord willing, throughout this evening, we find some unchanging principles that apply to all ambassadors of Christ. But at the same time, it's important to recognize the unique position of the twelve. Notice again in verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. The twelve disciples are the authoritative revelatory agents of Christ. They are the ones that will lay the foundation of the church. And the principle of their unique office is critical for us to grasp in understanding the miraculous works that Christ authorizes them to do, that he enables them to do. They have the unique responsibility of representing Christ after his ascension to establish the church, and they are given unique ability to uh, authorize their role as the apostles of Christ. If you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 2, you can, you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2, as the writer of Hebrews is 
speaking of the superiority of Christ in every way, in verse 1, after he has argued for the superiority of Christ over the angels, laid down the first principles for that, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And the references to the apostles while verse 4 while god also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the holy spirit distributed according to his will this is one of the key passages in understanding the nature of the miracles the sign gifts and the miracles that the disciples did they did those as an attestation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the, the fact that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, was the pinnacle of revelation, was the completion of God's revelation to man, which the writer established in the first statements in Hebrews chapter 1. And he's making an argument and pointing out the fact that because we have the final revelation in the person of Jesus Christ explained by the apostles in the epistles that we have, that once the canon of Scripture was completed and once the last of the apostles died, that there was no need for further revelation. We have all that we needed. And therefore, the, the season for the sign gifts and miracles was completed because the revelation of Christ was completed. And so, as we're thinking about the commission that the Lord is giving to his disciples in this passage here at Mark, again, we need to think about it, it, it with that distinction. On the one hand, we're going to see timeless principles, timeless instruction for all ambassadors of Christ, but there is also a uniqueness to this mission in that it's given to his 12 authoritative representatives as he prepares them for their unique task. And so we want to be sure that we don't uh, unnecessarily freight application for today with what was meant for that unique period and for those men holding that unique office. Back in chapter 3, when Jesus called the twelve out of the other disciples that had been following him, it says in verse 14, he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. 
And the word appointed in that passage is a word that is often translated to make. And the the significance of that is when Jesus called those 12 men, he made, he created a, a, a new office of apostle. And he was, again, preparing these men for their unique mission of laying the foundation of the church. The marks of a true apostle, therefore, apply only to the twelve plus Paul. And the twelve includes Matthias, ultimately not Judas, who would betray Christ, plus Paul. And we went through these earlier when we looked at uh, the, the office that Christ created back in chapter 3, but let me just refresh our memories about the, the unique marks of a true apostle. True apostles are appointed directly by the incarnate Christ. Jesus called these men and he appointed them to their office while he was on earth. They were able to perform signs and miracles, and they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And if you think about a ship going into shore, often um, before we had the wonderful technology we have today, a ship would have to line up the lights that were put in a harbor to make sure they made it safely through. And you had to have all three lights in, in the line to know that you were going in the right direction. And the same is true when we, when we consider the marks of an apostle, that all three of these had to be true. They were appointed directly by the incarnate Christ. They were able to perform signs and miracles, and they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Paul himself says, I was born as one out of season. Yet nonetheless, all three of these marks applied to him, but in a unique way, of course, as he met Christ on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. So the unique office of the apostles means that the foundation is completely laid. The foundation for the church, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely laid in the teaching of the apostles. So there is no true apostle today. Anyone who claims to be an apostle today is a false teacher, period. There can't be. There's one foundation that was laid, and it was laid by the apostles appointed by Jesus Christ. Once that foundation is laid, there's no further reason for apostles. There are no apostles today. All preaching and teaching, however, that takes place must be based on the doctrine of the apostles. In other words, the Word of God. And one way to, it's kind of helpful, I think, to understand the progression of the New Testament, if you think about the Gospels, you have Christ presented. This is the account of Christ on earth and His work on the cross and His resurrection. When we get to the book of Acts, you have Christ proclaimed. 
as the apostles are empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ and establish the church in Asia Minor, many churches in Asia Minor, as they go on those missionary journeys, Christ is proclaimed. And then in the epistles, we have life in Christ explained. As the church, as the churches grew and matured, questions began to arise. And Christ used his authoritative revelatory agents, the apostles, to write letters to the churches to clarify what life in Christ looks like. And, of course, a couple of the other, such as James, were closely associated with the apostles, and their books were endorsed by, by the apostles and consistent with the teaching. But all, all teaching, all preaching and teaching is based on the doctrine of the apostles, but there are going to be no other apostles. And this is something that... that you know, we, is repeated often, I think, from the pulpit here, and it, and it needs to be because there's so much confusion uh, in, in so-called Christianity uh, about miracles and offices, yet Scripture is clear. There's one foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles laid the foundation of truth for the church. And so again, just a refresher as we go get into this passage of the unique role of the apostles. But let's move into the passage and notice how Jesus prepares his ambassadors, the work that Jesus does in preparing his ambassadors. We're going to see first this evening that Christ appoints people who need training. Isn't that comforting? Christ appoints people who need training. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Remember again, Jesus said, I will make you to become fishers of men. When he called the twelve to follow him, they were not perfect. There, There had to be some training and some transformation that would take place. And we've already been confronted with the need in the apostles. Let me just give us a couple highlights up to this point. Back in chapter 1 and verses 36 through 39, after Jesus has healed the multitudes... We're told that Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And what was Jesus doing? Well, he was praying in verse 35. He had gone to spend time with his father. Simon Peter went to search him out, and the word there that describes what Peter was doing it is the idea of searching someone out to impose your will on them. He wanted Christ to meet his demands and the demands of the crowd to continue to do these miraculous things. And Jesus said, no, I'm here to teach. And so he left and they went and taught. In chapter 4, in verses 38 through 40, in the account of the storm, if you remember Jesus in that account, rebuked the disciples. 
The end of verse 38, they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, Peace be still, and, and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Uh, the track record isn't great right now. They're trying to impose their will on Christ. Jesus is rebuking them for not having faith. And, and even in the account of the woman who had the discharge of blood for 12 years that Jesus healed, Jesus, after the woman was healed in verse 30 of chapter 5, said, "'Who touched my garments?' And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Right? They're, they're, they're almost incredulous that Christ would ask that question. And if we move on in the gospel, in chapter 8, which some see as the end of this section that we're beginning here in chapter 6, in chapter 8, in verses 14 through 20, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and they're completely misunderstanding what he says about the leaven of the Pharisees. And so in verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand. This is after they've been sent out, after the account of what we're studying right now. Christ appoints people who needed training. Jesus appoints men who are going to fail repeatedly. Even Judas is part of this group. Judas, he's included in this mission these are people that need training. These are people that will fail Christ. And yet, He is appointing them. He is making them fishers of men. There certainly is... There's so many lessons just in this aspect of, of these men. One very simple lesson is that these 12 apostles are not worthy of worship. They are not worthy to be venerated in sainthood in any way. They're men who were saved by grace, and they were men who failed often and needed to repent and needed the Lord's mercy constantly in their lives. They were men. We also see a pattern for training those that will ultimately preach Christ. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, "...what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men 
who will be able to entrust other or to teach others also. That's a verse that basically covers four generations of truth proclaimers. Paul says to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul has communicated to Timothy, that's two. Timothy, you then entrust to faithful men, that's the third generation, who will be able to teach others, that's the fourth generation. The constant propagation of the truth and the training of others to proclaim the truth. And the reality of that endeavor is that you will often find yourself investing in people who will disappoint you. Paul was no exception. At the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 2 or chapter 4, in verse 10, he told Timothy about Demas who, having fallen in love with this present world, had forsaken him. Well, we read in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24 that Demas had been useful at one time to Paul in the ministry. He had been faithful. There are those that you invest in that will disappoint you, but isn't that exactly what happened to Christ? He's sending out people who need to be trained, people who are slow of understanding, people who haven't even fully identified who he is. And yet he is patient and authorizes them to proclaim his arrival and his kingdom. One commentator by the name of Edwards insightfully observes the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of missionaries, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. And anyone who has done any work in proclaiming Christ understands the mercy of the Lord. You look back on Things you said and you can't believe. How, how in the world am I still in existence after having said things like that? It's the mercy of the Lord. The Lord is patient. Christ is so patient with his ambassadors. In the midst of their slowness to understand, he sends them out and he enables them even to heal in his name. We're not going to have their confession of who he is until chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? But he still sends them out. He fulfills his word that he stated, I will make you to become fishers of men. It's so easy for us. We're so familiar with the apostles, and, and we, you know, in our mind, I, I assume, I, I do this, maybe, uh, maybe not everyone, but. You know, we just kind of think of the apostles at their pinnacle as apostles. But we find that they are men that were slow to believe, slow to understand, and that needed to become what would ultimately become useful to Christ. Christ's compassion, his patience is just beyond what we can really comprehend. I just, 
as, as I look at this passage and think about the fact that Jesus is sending out Judas who will betray him and Peter who will deny him. And he's telling them, go in my name and proclaim the message of repentance and heal in my name. They were appointed for what Christ would make them, not for what they were at the time. Christ appoints people who need training. And all of this, folks, all of this simply brings glory to Christ. Everything that they did was only of Christ. It could be of nothing else. Would you see what surrounds what surrounds uh, this account and their slowness uh, to believe. This was only of Christ. Well, secondly, then, we see that Christ commissions ambassadors by his authority. He appoints people who need training. Look at verse 7 again. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Christ commissions ambassadors by his authority. The language in this passage, Christ called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, is a language that indicates an official commission. The king is giving his ambassadors a commission. And so in sending them out, he sends them two by two. He does that so that there's mutual accountability and fellowship and the strengthening of one another in the ministry, but also to legally establish their witness according to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. The message of and the witness of these men would be corroborated by one another. But most importantly, he sends them out in his name. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 6. He gave them authority. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, this sets Jesus apart once again from all the other teachers and rabbis of the day. Most rabbis never sent ambassadors. They collected people to learn from them, but they didn't send ambassadors. Much less would they send ambassadors in their own name and give them their authority. If anything, they called students to themselves out of loyalty to the law, out of loyalty to the word of God, not out of a personal loyalty to them. Jesus sends out ambassadors and gives them his authority. It's, it's noteworthy, too, that as he sends them out, he doesn't pray that they will have power. He gives them power. In contrast, think about after Jesus has ascended. In the book of Acts, as the, as the apostles are witnessing for Christ, and in Acts chapter 4, After Peter's been released from prison, the disciples gather together and they pray. And they're praying specifically that they will continue to be effective in their witness for Christ. But listen to what they say in that prayer. 
beginning in verse 29 of Acts chapter 4, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When Jesus is, a, is away from them, they're asking, they're asking for power. They're asking for boldness. They, they need something apart from and outside of themselves to enable them to be a witness. Jesus doesn't ask. He just gives. And it's one of the indications, another indication of his deity. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of course, later in Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 through 20 in the final commission recorded in the Gospels given to the disciples, Jesus begins that commission with what words? All authority, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples in my name, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The authority then that Jesus gives them over the unclean spirits and to heal is a tangible reflection of the role of, of the 12 as Jesus' authoritative agents. We're seeing, in other words, that, G, that the disciples are doing exactly what Jesus does. He's giving them authority to carry out the mission and ultimately to be the foundation of the church. It's important that we, as we think about what Jesus is saying here and sending them out with his authority, that we again rem remember Paul's words, what, what happens when ambassadors go out? What happens is that God is making his appeal through the ambassador's ministry, that they are ministers on behalf of Christ. And this passage makes that extremely clear as Jesus gives them the authority for their mission. Another important element to recognize in Paul's record here, what had just happened back in Nazareth? Well, his hometown had rejected Jesus. And Jesus, because of that rejection, limited his miracles. It was out of mercy. It wasn't because unbelief limited Jesus. Jesus limited his miracles out of mercy. But what we find in the next account is that the authority of Christ does not rest on the response of people. His hometown rejects him. But Jesus turns around and gives authority to 12 men, enabling them to heal, enabling them to cast out demons, and even according to Mark chapter or Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, to raise the dead. The unbelief in no way, shape, or form affected the authority of Christ. Truth remains truth whether or not people believe it. 
Christ is unchanged in his essence even when he is rejected. Christ will carry out his purposes with the instruments that he chooses. Rejecting Christ places no obstacle in the path of Christ for accomplishing his purposes and for building his church. His authority is inherent to his person And there is no unbelief, there is no opposition that will in any way diminish his authority. But at the same time, those who are commissioned by Christ as as ambassadors will face the same kind of opposition. On the one hand, he gives them authority, he gives them authority over the unclean spirits, At the end of the passage, they're going to go out and proclaim that people should repent. They'll cast out many demons and anoint with oil people who are sick and heal them. But why why does the account of the death of John the Baptist follow this? And why does the account of the disciples going out as ambassadors of Christ bookend the account of John's death? Well, within the organization of Mark's material, there's an inherent message that ambassadors of Christ will face the same kind of opposition that Christ faced. John's death is a foreshadowing for the death that will ultimately happen to Christ. And it's also an indication that those who follow Christ will be strongly opposed. And when we think about the message that the ambassadors of Christ preach, it is no wonder. When we think about our our world, when when tragedy strikes, the worldly response to tragedy is to idolize humanity, is to idolize some kind of love, and even even to talk about praying. To who? Who knows? But that's acceptable language. But folks, the, the ambassador, witnesses of Christ... It's much more poignant. Witnesses to Christ, ambassadors of Christ say, look, it is appointed to man to die once. Well, at that point, the world doesn't have a problem because everybody knows that. But there's a second part. It's appointed to man to die once and after this the judgment. When you get to that point, that's when heads start getting lifted off of shoulders because that message is hated. It's appointed to men to die once, yes, and after this, the judgment. And it doesn't matter how nice a person is It doesn't matter how many good works are done. The only thing that matters 
at death is whether or not a person is in Christ, and that determines their eternal destiny. Folks, that is the message that is offensive, but that is the message that ambassadors for Christ are called to proclaim. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you can guarantee that faithful proclamation of the message of Christ and the call to repentance and the reality of a future judgment will generate strong opposition. Just like Christ faced. But Christ commissions his ambassadors by his authority, and so his ambassadors must preach and proclaim what Christ proclaims. Well, let's notice third this evening that Christ instructs his ambassadors. He appoints people who need training, he commissions ambassadors by his authority, and he instructs his ambassadors. In verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is the first go-round for these men. So Jesus doesn't say, you know, go out and preach and you know, have, have, have fun figuring it out for yourself. No, there, there's some very pointed instructions that he gives to these disciples. The first point of instruction is to teach them dependence. Jesus teaches dependence. He tells them that they can take minimal provisions. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So basically, he said, as you are, go. If you have a staff, take it. You're wearing sandals, keep wearing them. Now go and proclaim the gospel in my name. It's interesting that in Luke 22 and verses 35 through 37, Jesus refers back to this appointment and and asks the disciples, did you lack anything when I sent you out? And they said, no, we didn't. He provided for their needs. And and it's also a point in that passage where where he says, okay, but now go ahead and, and take a bag and take money and take a sword. And, and what we see as we look at those two pa- these two passages together is, is that what's happening here in Mark 6 is a temporary point of instruction. As Jesus is preparing his disciples for the role that, they're, that they will have, he's teaching them critical lessons that they'll need throughout their ministry, the first one being a very simple lesson of dependence. Well, you're absolutely dependent when you're out for perhaps weeks and you have no provisions. You're, you're depending on the Lord every day to give you what you need. 
We, we could say that this, this was a spiritual basic training for these men. I ask a, a, a man who, who, is in the, who was in the military about basic training, and my question was, does, does, does or did basic training change your perspective? And without hesitation, the answer was yes. That's what basic training is designed to do. You're, you're transformed in your thinking process for the military. As Jesus is preparing these men to go forth in his name, ultimately to lay the foundation of the church, he is laying the groundwork in their thinking and giving them basic training in dependence on him. What can be more basic than each day the Lord providing what you need and then later on looking back and saying, you know what, when God sent us out like that, we never lacked anything. We learned dependence. God does this as he prepares people to serve him. Joseph had 13 years of slavery. Moses had 40 years of exile in the wilderness. Daniel was taken away to exile. Right? Repeatedly, as God prepares people to be ambassadors for him, he puts them in tight circumstances to teach them about depending on him. And what a contradiction it would be, wouldn't it? If in calling others to depend on the Lord for salvation, you couldn't depend on the Lord for your daily bread. In learning dependence... We're learning consistency, learning to be consistent with our message, what we're offering to people and living that out. Jesus taught dependence by the minimal provisions that he allowed them to bring. Jesus also taught them contentment. Look at verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Staying in that same home prohibited the disciples from moving to better accommodations as their popularity grew. You think about what they're called to do. They're called to heal people and to cast out demons. And, you know, so these two people come into town and someone opens up their home. Nobody knows who they are. But then they minister and they're doing these wonderful things and their popularity grows. And, you know, oh, there's a, someone in a nicer house that says, why don't you come over here and stay with us? And Jesus says, no, 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 you stay where you are. You're there for the, for, the, for the reason of proclaiming my name. Paul tells us that contentment is learned. In Philippians chapter 4.11, he said, I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is also in contrast to what many false teachers would do. False teachers would seek the softest beds and the richest meals. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul warns that there are people who creep into households, plural, and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. This is part of what false teachers would do. They would try to get the best hospitality that they could and move from place to place. 
Jesus wanted his disciples, Jesus knew his disciples needed to learn contentment, to rest in the goodness of the Lord in all situations. Jesus also taught the disciples the need for discernment. Verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Those who rejected the preaching of the kingdom of God and the call to repent were to be left so that others could hear. Shaking the dust in that day implied uh, impurity, implied being under judgment. Uh, the Jews would often shake the dust from their garments when they when they had to traverse through Gentile lands. And as they came out of the Gentile land and back into Israel, they would shake the impure Gentile dirt from their, from their clothes so that the Gentile dirt wouldn't contaminate the Jewish dirt. And, and so they were very particular about this. And Jesus, in, 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 in using that object lesson, is essentially saying the rejection of the message of the kingdom of God and the rejection of the call to repent is an indication of the impurity of that town, of that place. They're left in their sins. And it's also a testimony to them of their need to repent. It was a vivid object lesson that people needed to repent. Christ instructs his ambassadors. There's more instruction that Christ, of course, will give throughout the course of his ministry. It culminates in John chapter six, chapter 13 through 16. And in that portion of Scripture, Jesus will actually tell his disciples, I've given you instruction but I'm going to send another who will continue to give instruction, the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit comes according to the promise in the book of Acts. And what does the Holy Spirit do? And this is such a critical question to answer, even to understand the great chaos and confusion around all the, the, the teaching of miraculous gifts for this day. Now, when the Holy Spirit came, the whole reason for the coming of the Spirit was to enable the people, enable the apostles to preach Christ, to be taught of the significance of Christ in Scripture and to preach Christ. And that was fulfilled ultimately in the coming of the Spirit. Christ instructs His ambassadors well, finally, in the last portion of this passage, we see that Christ enables his ambassadors to obey. Verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that all the people should repent, or that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. What do we see in this passage? Well, the twelve proclaimed exactly what Jesus proclaimed. Repent! Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
And they're proclaiming this message. They went and they proclaimed that people should repent. The, the word proclaim is a word that means to declare with authority, to preach. Preaching the gospel is an authoritative declaration that people must turn in faith and repentance to Christ. I've said this before, but a, a helpful uh, definition of preaching is that preaching is an authoritative monologue that addresses the will. It's taking the word of God, the authority of the word of God, the authority of Christ and saying, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. Here's what you need to hear. Here's how you need to respond to the truth of God's word. And it's the same message of preaching repentance that characterizes the apostles preaching all the way through the book of Acts. Turn over to Acts chapter 3, just for one example of this. Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching in this passage. And we'll pick up in verse 17. Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then look at the end of this passage, verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Folks, that's the preaching of the gospel. Here's what God has said in his word. Here's how it's fulfilled in Christ. Here's the day that's coming when you're going to stand before Christ, when all is reconciled in Christ. That day is coming. It's appointed to men to die once, and after that, the judgment. So turn away from your wickedness. Repent of your sins. It's authoritative. It's a command. Being an ambassador for Christ means that you represent the person who sends you. Ambassadors are not innovators. Let me say that again. Ambassadors are not innovators. They are representatives. They are representatives of the sovereign who sends them. And as ambassadors for Christ... Those who are in Christ and those who are specifically gifted to proclaim Christ, and in this case, the apostles, as they're specifically commissioned ultimately to lay the foundation of the church, they do not have liberty to depart from the message of their king. They must preach Christ. 
They must preach the message defined by Christ. To change the gospel, to change the call to repentance, to reinvent the kingdom of God according to your own personal specifications is abominable and abhorrent. No, the king has spoken. The king has revealed himself and his ambassadors must speak accordingly. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and verses 10 and 11, Peter speaks of the various giftings within the body of Christ. And he's the most concise when he talks about these spiritual gifts. He says some are gifted to serve and some are gifted to speak. But he says specifically of those gifted to speak, let those who speak speak as the oracles of God. And what he communicates in that statement is that those who speak must speak what God has said the way God has said it. It's not an innovative message. You're not to get up and, and, and create a, a time of entertainment. You get up and you declare what God has said the way God has said it. And in doing that, there is great liberty and there is great freedom and there is great authority. It's not, it's not the preacher's own message. It's a pre-written message in and from the Scripture. So calling people to a personal relationship with Jesus by believing facts about Jesus and saying a prayer without calling people to repentance is an aberration of the truth. Everyone's in a relationship with Christ. You're either an enemy of Christ or you're a brother of Christ. You need to repent and receive forgiveness of sins from Christ. Gospel proclamation involves an urgency to communicate Christ's command that people repent and believe. And folks, repenting and believing is not optional. For the good of your eternal state, repenting and believing is not optional. And ambassadors of Christ have, have to understand the urgency to communicate to people, look, th this isn't a matter of, you know, if, if you feel like it, it might be a great idea to choose Jesus someday. Folks, the urgency is, is taken from a passage like James where James says, look, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. Our life isn't even guaranteed unless it's the Lord's will. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. But because we don't even know if we're going to live another minute, look, repent and believe now. Today is the day of salvation. This is not a laissez-faire exchange. There's an intensity and a need to preach that people should repent. Christ enabled his disciples to preach and he enabled them to exercise compassion. As they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. 
And this is the only passage where we have apostles anointing people with oil and very simply stated the significance of that is the tangible representation of their office. Their authority wasn't their own. And so the anointing was just the tangible expression of the authority of their office alongside of the miraculous healing that the Lord authorized them to do. The miracles simply testified to the unique authority of Christ as the King and the anticipation of His final reign. And what will that final reign be like? Well, in that final reign, there will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness. All will be well under the authority of Christ. So repent and believe the gospel. Jesus preached it. His apostles preached it. Let no one, let no one misunderstand that entrance into the kingdom comes only through Jesus Christ. It comes only as you respond to Christ in repentance and in belief that He alone forgives sins. Well, Jesus' authority, still to this day, many reject it, but it remains unchanged. Christ continues to send out His ambassadors. No, they're not apostles, and no, they don't heal. But Christ continues to send out His ambassadors to call people to repent and believe the gospel. I will leave us with two applications. First, have you repented of your sins? And are you repenting? Repentance is not the act of a moment. It's the, disp- it's the acquisition of a disposition. People in Christ are repenters. And second, what opportunities do you have to proclaim Jesus Christ? Are you living by His grace and dependence on Him and by His grace and contentment with the life that He has given to you, the place that He has put you? And are you able to proclaim to others their need to turn to Jesus Christ? May the Lord give us His grace and His strength to be faithful in the opportunities that we have. And we have a whole new year before us, new opportunities, fresh opportunities to continue to proclaim Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you tonight for sending Christ as our Savior. We praise you for his perfect ministry on this earth. We thank you that he is the ultimate example of godliness, the perfect example, but yet he is so much more in that he is our righteousness and our redemption. He is everything to us. And in him, in him alone is life. We thank you for the time that we've had in the Word, and we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in each of our lives for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.